Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. The cry, the why, the my, the question, the confession. The question, the confession. Let's start with the cry. See, first, just notice that about the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., Jesus cried out. Now, that word cried actually is better translated as shrieked out, to shriek or to scream. And I think the translators just couldn't bring themselves to, 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 to think of their Savior in that way. But, but that's what it means is to shriek out. And immediately anybody who would read this text for the very first time would think that Jesus is cracked. He's cracked. He, he, he's, that's it. He's given up. He, he's saying, God, you've failed me. Jesus seems to just be giving up. He's saying, God, where are you? Um, and what's interesting about the fact that this narrative admits that Jesus uh, screamed out, that he shrieked out, um, is that even the most skeptical scholars say that this had to have happened. Because, and here's why they say that, because when you think about it, and they say, well, if somebody were to make up this narrative, um, then they would have, and they wanted this to be like a promotional account of faith. They wanted people to begin to believe uh, this made-up narrative, then uh, they would have never put their religious founder in a place where these were the last words out of his mouth. So despondent, so unheroic, so hopeless. Think about it. When you read about the end of Buddha's life or Muhammad's life or any other major spiritual founder, they're always dying in peace or uh, dying with some sort of wise words or heroic sayings, you see. If you were to make up a piece of literature uh, trying to promote faith, you would never, ever admit that your spiritual leader is shrieking out saying, God, you've abandoned me. I, I, you know, I've given up. You, you, you've, you've left me. You see. And for those of you that are like myself that have a skeptical mind, this is a big point. Because what, because what, uh, the, what, what it's pointing to is the fact of this event. Is the fact of this event. And they never will forget the cry. And I don't want you to forget the cry either because it happened. He died on the cross. So first, what, what, what do you mean, Pastor Roger, when you say the cry? The cry is simply points to the fact of Jesus' death. It solidifies the claim of what's going on. The crucifixion of Jesus is the second fact about the life of Jesus that is universally accepted among historians. The, the, the first fact is that there was, in fact, someone called Jesus of Nazareth that lived. That's universally accepted among historians. The second fact is that that Jesus was crucified on a cross, was executed on a cross. That's the second fact that's universally accepted by historians, you see. By liberal historians, conservative historians, religious, irreligious, it's an indisputable established fact, the cry. The cry. So now the why. 
Look at this. The, the word why there, when he says, uh, why have you forsaken me? Why starts moving us to the reason. Why did God forsake Jesus? Now that's a question. That's a great question. That's an interesting question. It's a provocative question. Why did God forsake Jesus on the cross? The beginning of the, of the answer is to realize that when Jesus was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was actually quoting a verse. And we forget that. He was quoting Psalm 22. And, and when we realize it, and yeah, he wasn't just quoting it. He was screaming it out. He was shrieking it out in pain. But, but see, what that lets us know is that Jesus hadn't in fact cracked. He actually knew what was going on. He knew exactly what he was saying. And listen, listeners that heard him would know what he was saying because he was quoting from Psalms 22. You say, well, what's Psalms 22? Well, Psalms 22 is a psalm written by King David and David would write songs about various events in his life, great events, tragic events. For instance, in Psalms 51, he wrote that after his son died. But what's interesting about Psalms 22 is when we look at that and we begin to uh, wonder, did this really happen? Because, because look at what Psalms 22 says. It, King David wrote it, but as you reflect upon it, you begin to think, wait a minute, when did this happen to David? And so what I want to do is I just want to read you excerpts from the Psalms 22, okay? So look at this. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is David. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads, saying he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Strong bulls encircle around me. Roaring lions open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. You lay me in the dust of death. A pack of vill villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments." When did that ever happen to King David? It didn't. It didn't. Because see, what, what commentaries say is that what David is describing is he's not describing an illness. He's not describing some kind of persecution. You know what he's describing? An execution. An execution. But when was King David ever executed? He wasn't. He wasn't. Instead, King David is speaking about a king to come, a Messiah king. And so when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he is telling his listeners is I am the king that David spoke of that would come the true king, the Messiah king, you see. I am being executed, Jesus is saying. Judgment is coming down on me. See, the execution isn't just about a tragic death, but it's a punishment. And this is why it says there was darkness. It was darkness. Maybe you know the hymn that says, Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. See, darkness means God's judgment. And when, and, and when it says it happened all over the land, it is a sign and it's the fact that God's judgment is over all of humans, human race and punishment is deserved and it has to come down somewhere. It had to come down somewhere and it did. 
Now, now let me just say that you can't come to grips with or understand why God forsook Jesus. You, you, you can't understand the cross unless you understand that all human beings stand guilty before God and deserve judgment and punishment. Now, I know that that's a controversial statement. I know. I know. I know. I know. Just look and just meditate on this little sentence. And I know we don't have time to lay out everything, but, and this is important, but, but modern people resist this. And here's one of the reasons why modern people resist it, because all of our lives, we are told, don't let other people make you feel guilty. That's what we're told. Listen, guilt is a bad thing. It shows you're letting other people control you. Don't do that. You have to decide for yourself what's right and what's wrong. That's what we're told. You have to decide what's right and what's wrong. And then you live the way you want to live, but don't let anybody make you feel guilty for living that way. Now, let me just explain that that's actually kind of pathological because if you've ever read Walker Percy's novel, Love and Ruins, you'll, you'll see it laid out there. But imagine if somebody came to you and said, I just murdered five children and I don't feel guilty about it. Oh, all of a sudden now somebody should feel guilty because you've determined that was wrong. See? See, in, in a society that says, no, people don't let people make you feel guilty. I have to decide what's wrong and right for me. What you mean is that there's nothing more important than your feelings and your consciousness and your needs and your intuition. Right. That's all that matters. There's nothing more important than you. Right. Nothing transcends you. Right. In other words, if there's no guilt, there's no hope. Because you have nothing to live for, nothing to die for. There's no guilt, there's no hope. See, in the Garden of Eden, this is exactly what Adam and Eve did. They determined that they would be the ones to say what was right and what was wrong, what was okay to do and what wasn't okay to do, and that they didn't need God, that they could, that they could define it themselves, that they were self-sufficient. And so because of that, they had to leave the garden. And when they left the relational presence of God, it's interesting because it says when they left, that in front of the entrance of the garden was a sword on fire fire flashing back and forth at the entrance. And so the only way to get back into the relational presence of God was to die. Was to die. See, somebody had to go under the blade. Somebody had to go under the sword. Somebody had to go under the knife. When someone asked the question, well, did there have to be death? I mean, you know, couldn't God just have, you know, I don't know, snapped his finger, maybe I'll go away, you know, type of thing. When we get that question, and I don't have time to lay this out, but let me just say that. When somebody asks this question, it's because two things, they don't understand the offense of sin, and they don't understand who they've offended. We stand guilty before God. And guilt shows us there is, that there is something more important than you and me, right. and that's God. You're supposed to love God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind because he's given you everything. You're, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, and we don't live up to that. Our society doesn't live up to that. Humanity does not live up to that at all, right? And, and, and listen, we have something to live for because there is hope, there is truth, there is right, and there is guilt. The dark clouds of God's judgment lie over the whole land. 
there should be execution. There should be punishment. That's why Jesus was forsaken, because the punishment was coming down on him. On him. The cry, the why, and now the my. I want us to look at that little word, my, because what, what that little word, my, says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We really come in, into this almost holy of holies. We, we get to learn that there are two ways in, that, it, that Christ accomplished our salvation, two ways with that little word, why, am I, and, and it points to this, his infinite sufferings and his perfect obedience. His infinite sufferings and his perfect obedience. See, first his infinite sufferings, my God, my God. Notice what he's not saying. Notice he's not saying my head, my head, my hands, my hands, my, my feet, my feet, my side, my side, right? You know, notice he's not saying those things, right? He, he's not doing that. He's not complaining about that. He's not shrieking about that. He's not screaming about that. Notice he's also not saying, my friends, my friends, you know, where are my friends at, right? My, my disciples, my disciples. He, he's not talking about that either. The, the, the physical suffering isn't the problem. The, the, the human relational suffering isn't the problem. Because think about it, up until now, under incredible pressure, physical suffering, relational human rejection, Jesus has been pretty poised about this whole thing up until now. Why? Why? What's happened? What's happened up until now in this very moment? Because what's happened up until now is something that's beyond all that. It's a suffering that he is experiencing that makes all physical and all other suffering just feel like a flea bite in comparison. What is it? What, what is it? What, what is that suffering? There's no greater agony than to lose love. There's no greater agony than to lose love. And of course, depending on how long and how deep that love was, the more agony it is. You know, if you have an acquaintance and they say, I don't want to see you anymore, you're like, okay, cool. <laughs> right? Dip, unfollow, defriend, whatever. If you, have a, if you have a friend that you've known for a little while and they don't want to see you anymore, you know, it's, it's angry. You, you know, you get defensive, you get bitter. If you have a spouse that you've been married to for years and years and years and you love that spouse and all of a sudden they say they don't want to see you anymore, that pain is far more, isn't it? Isn't it? And, and the longer that you are with that person, you know, if it's 10 years, it hurts worse. If it's 60 years, it hurts even worse. But what about this? The father and the son. You know, John 1.8 says that, uh, that the son was in the bosom of the father throughout all eternity. The father and the son were, were wrapped in one another. And not just for 40 years, not just for 50 years. They weren't just in loving relationship for 60 years or 100 years or 1,000 years, but for all eternity. That's what Jesus lost. The shriek, the cry. The shriek, the cry. There's nothing compared to that. The love of the Father and the Son ha ha had to make even the greatest marriage in all history look like a dewdrop in comparison. On the cross, he was experiencing eternal suffering compressed down to six hours because what is the punishment? What is it? When I say it's punishment, what, what is it? What's the punishment? 
The right and just punishment, if we turn away from God, if we don't love him like we should, is exclusion. It's called hell. But he wasn't just experiencing eternal hell compressed down to six hours, but he was taking it all for us, for each and every person. So in other words, he was experiencing on the cross was like a zillion of eternal hells compressed down, laid all upon him at once. You say, how could that be? See, you might not know anything about me. You might not even remember my name. But if you were to see me crying out, Becca, Becca, if you were to see me uh, screaming out and crying out, Becca, Becca, where are you? You would know immediately that I have lost somebody that I am in relationship with. See, this is going to be a little fast theology lesson, but we need it. When Jesus Christ says, my God, he's using a covenant language because God says in the Old Testament, if you enter into a covenant relationship with me, a saving relationship with me, I will be your God and you will be my people. He gives us the right to call him God. It's a covenant name. It means your relationship with me. And, and, and now every person in history of the world up until now can be assured that if you give yourself to God, God will be with you. But Jesus Christ, listen, he obeyed God but he was abandoned. Nobody experiences that but Christ. But Christ. God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become righteousness of God. It's saying that not only did God put our sins on him so he dies the death we should have died, but also God puts his righteousness on us because he lived the life we should have lived. It's not just that God pardons you and says, now you get uh, you know, out of jail free, but he puts the, 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 the medal of honor on you and, and God treats you as if you had done everything that Jesus did. Yeah. The, the idea of being clothed in righteousness of Christ is a big abstraction for most people, even including myself, until you see this. You see, what, what are you saying, Roger? Are, are you saying that, that God actually treats me? If I believe in Jesus, that God treats me as if I had done what Jesus did? See, you're not just forgiven even though you are. You didn't just die the death. The, he didn't just die the death that you should have died. He didn't just go through infinite suffering. He also perfectly obeyed in your place. So when you believe, his righteousness is put on you. In other words, watch this, Jesus died in your name so you can live in his. Jesus died in your name so you can live in his. And this is hard to swallow because we know ourselves. We know ourselves. We know what we think. We know what we think. My daughter Eden painted a picture one time, and she gave it to me, and I said, oh, this is beautiful, and I put it down on a table, and and one of my other daughters, and because they're in the service, I, I won't embarrass them, came up to me and, and they said, um, Daddy, that's, that's kind of ugly, huh? <laughs> and I said, no, baby, it's beautiful. And, and you know what, it, it, I mean, you know, it's, it's ugly. <laughs> but even though the reality is it's ugly, the thing is when I see it, I see my daughter. You see, the Bible says that when God the Father looks at you, if you've accepted Christ, his blood covers you. In other words, when God looks at you, even in your mess and even in your mistakes and even in all of the, the ups and downs of life and, and the ins and outs and the struggles, that what he sees is his son and he calls you holy and he calls you beautiful because he died in your name so you can live in his. You see. The cry, the why, the my, and quickly the last two, the question. 
When you look back and you say, wait a minute, why did he do this? Why did he do it? Why, 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 why did Jesus allow himself to be for, for, forsaken? Why? And so you might be thinking, well, he did it to glorify the Father. And that's true, but he was already glorifying the Father in heaven. So why did he do it? Theologian D.A. Carson puts it simply in one word. He says, us. Us. He did it for us. He did it for you and for me. From the broken bread to the poured out cup of communion, you can almost hear the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now you know the answer. He did it for you. And as we conclude these thoughts and reflections of the cross, we have the cry, the why, the my, the question, and the confession. The unexpected confession. Look at this in verse 39. And as we get ready to transition here, I just want us to think about what's being said. Look at this. It says, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus Christ, the centurion was the Roman soldier, who stood there in front of Jesus Christ and watched carefully and saw how Jesus died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. Mark includes this incredible detail. And it's interesting because this centurion would have seen thousands of people die, thousands of people crucified. What was it about Jesus? And, and, and then look at what he says. He says, surely this was the son of of God. What's happening here? What's happening here? The, he, he was the very first person in this crucifixion narrative to realize that something of cosmic significance was happening. And it wasn't a disciple of Christ to witness it. It, it, it wasn't one of his followers to, to admit it. But it was a Roman Gentile. Somebody that would have never even thought about using the language the Son of God. And yet, God revealed Christ to him. Let, and, and this is so amazing, and we should be grateful because the grace of God extends even to those who seem the most unlikely to receive it. Even to enemies. In fact, the Bible says that while we were enemies of Christ, Christ died for us. Think about that. See, in order to understand who God is, you must look at the cross when John in the book of Revelation was, was, having, was having this vision, it says that, that, uh, that the, an elder came to him and, and said, uh, behold, the lion of Judah is on the throne. Come, I want you to look at the lion of Judah. I want you to look at, at, at God on the throne. Come, behold the lion of Judah. And John lifted up his eyes and what he saw on the throne was a slain lamb. Come look at a lion. You look and it's a lamb. It's a lamb. You see. See, in other words, in order to see God and all of his power, you, you, you must see the slain lamb. Do you see him? You, you must see the cross. You must see how Jesus died. Because when you see the cross, it's undisputable. When you see the cross, it answers why God allows evil in this world. When you see the cross, you understand why you go through suffering. When you see the cross, you understand who you are in Him. Do you see the broken body? Do you see the poured out blood? Because when you do, then you'll understand. Whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're a believer or you're, or you're a skeptic, 
we are like the centurion. And will you say, surely this was the Son of God. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash inspirechurches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.